A U.S. Air A320 is on its way to North Carolina from New York when something unthinkable happens after takeoff. What caused this flight to make the first successful ditching on the Hudson River? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And I'm not Nick still. <laughs> Thanks, Brendan. Thank you. Nick will be here later, though. He will be. Yes. He is helping because this is a heck of an episode. Because it's the last of our Bird Strike series. So if you haven't listened to the first three episodes, I mean, it's not super crucial, but it does provide some context. Yeah, you might want to go back one or three episodes uh, just to get some context. Because this is the big one. The, the famous one. The big one. The big one. Also, if you hear a high-pitched whine, it's just us having a fan on. Because it is ridiculously hot. And we can't survive up here without yeah, a fan. Movie toasty. <laughs> yeah, so please excuse the fan. Also, welcome to Sebastian, our newest patron from Germany. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we recorded a lot in advance, so we saw... Thank you for joining several weeks ago. We didn't see it till after we recorded everything else. So <laughs> thank you so much. And thanks to all our patrons. You guys are awesome and amazing. Remember, check out the merch site. I would like to put a reminder to our patrons. If you have not updated your shipping address, please do so. I can't send you the stuff you get to have for free if you don't give me your address. Thank you. We all like free stuff, especially when you pay us money. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Also, for July, we're doing your celebration stories, because not everybody is in the United States. So, any fireworks, preferably, would be great. Yes, yeah, since I'm, 4th of July is in July. But yes. does not have to be a 4th of July story. Your especially. Independence Day stories. Yeah, it doesn't have to be Assuming American Assuming you are a country Day. that is independent. Yeah. <laughs> or celebration, whatever. Pick a story, tell us a story. I get to Doesn't include matter. my birthday fireworks stories because I always get fireworks for my birthday. Kind I'm of. special. Okay, I still get them. Like, it's not on July 4th, it's July 2nd, but still. I think that's everything for housekeeping. Housekeeping. So, what are we covering today, Brandon? We're covering U.S. Airways 1549. Thank you to Chris and Kate, our patrons, for yep. recommending this episode. Yep, yep, yep. Our story begins the afternoon of January 15th, 2009. An Airbus A320 registered November 106, Uniform Sierra. This aircraft is powered by two CFM Air National CFM 56-5B4-P dual rotor turbofan engines. Almost had it. Almost had it. <laughs> uh, this is a regularly scheduled passenger flight from New York's LaGuardia Airport. It's one of three in New York. Anyways, one from LaGuardia to Charlotte, North Carolina. 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 There are 150 passengers, including, I believe, a lap infant, and five crew members. Three cabin and th two... Pilots. Pilots. <laughs> Math. Three plus three is six, so there can't be three pilots. <laughs> the captain for today's flight is the renowned Chesley Sully. Sullenberger, age 57 years old. He has 19,663 total flight hours, 4,765 on the A320. 
He will be the pilot monitoring for today's flight. In the right seat is First Officer Jeffrey Skiles. He's 49 years old. He has 15,643 flight hours, including 37 on the A320. Brand new to the A320. Basically brand new. All the previous hours were probably mostly simulator stuff, and this is, I believe, his first trip. This would actually be his first time as pilot flying on the A320. Fancy. All the other times were pilot monitoring. Well, he picked a heck of a flight. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> Little did he know. Little did he know. The weather in New York was pretty dang good. Winds were pretty light. Nice clear skies, cloud ceilings at about 4,000 feet. It was pretty chilly, though, at negative 6 degrees Celsius, which is about 21 degrees Fahrenheit, and a relatively high altimeter setting. Not that that matters to anyone. When was this? January. January. Oh, so it's cold. It it's cold. It's cold. Middle winter. At 3.05 p.m. local time, not Sydney time. <laughs> oh, it's actually Easter time, not Eastern Sydney time. Yeah. From our oh, previous, got you. From our previous like, episode. What are you talking yeah. about? Go check out that one. Was that Pan Am flight something? 8.12? Yeah. Oh, that's right, because I kept saying 8.11 in the transcript. Flight pushback from the gate. Excellent. They did a good job with that. <laughs> During their pushback and after their pushback, they received their clearance from ground control. They said, Cactus 15.49, Foxtrot Bravo, hold short of Echo. Even though it's US Airways, it went by the term Cactus. Remember what that is from? Because another airline owned them that was based in Arizona. Arizona American yep, West. America West. America West actually bought U.S. Airways. But kept the name. But kept the name U.S. Airways. Kind of like how Continental and United merged. Yeah. Because yeah, Continental bought United. Yeah. But they kept United's name. Right. And, lo- and they kept Continental's logo. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but they put United. Yeah. Even though technically it's Continental. We won't get into the specifics of that, but there you go. Despite sporting the U.S. Airways colors, they were still called Cactus on the radio. That's the identifier to the for call American sign. West, yeah. We've discussed a couple of other airlines that went that have weird call signs compared to their airline name, like Speedbird, which is British Airways. But um, for their Concorde. Yep, and then pinnacle airlines which we discussed that was a flagship yep that was a miranda rage episode yeah that's a good one to go back and listen to by the way east wind was the last of the rudder hardover series and they their call sign was stinger and then pan am was usually clipper yes so some examples the ground controller can you just say hold short of echo just got a hold there for three minutes uh you are uh in trail into charlotte so I assume that another flight out of LaGuardia was or... also going to Charlotte. Yeah, or another New York airport was also going to Charlotte, and they need to have spacing, so... Gotcha. Can't, Important. Can't be flying right behind another all You don't want to hit... <laughs> yeah. Or the wake. Yeah, wake right. turbulence not great either. Prior to starting the taxi, Captain Sullenberger contacted the airline's operations with the aircraft's radio to update the passenger count along with the weight and balance. Though, while holding short of taxiway echo, Sullenberger said, I'm just going to call this guy directly because I don't think this ops guy knows what the expletive he's doing. (laughs) I'm just going to call our load control directly. His number is right here. And then called. So he pulled out his cell phone. (laughs) 
sitting on the taxiway and called the load agent directly. That's like some hot fire salty stuff toward the upper <laughs> yeah. right. This guy is just like, he doesn't know what he's doing. I'm going to call them directly. It's like, dang, okay. Oof. Some rough life in the ops department. It's a hard not life. <laughs> it's a hard ops life. <laughs> <laughs> that works too well. Okay. Finally, 20 minutes after pushing back to the gate at 3.25 p.m. local, Cactus Flight 1549 was cleared for takeoff on runway 4 at LaGuardia. The initial portion of the climb was uneventful. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, 45 seconds after takeoff, the flight was handed off to New York Departure Control. Captain Sullivan contacted Departure Control, saying that the airplane was at 700 feet, climbing to 5,000. The controller, Patrick Harton... Then instructed the aircraft to climb and maintain 15,000. The captain acknowledged the instructions. The airplane also made a slight left-hand turn following their instrument departure. The crew began some after-takeoff checks, and Captain Solberger even said, Ugh, what a view of the Hudson today. Little oh boy. did he know. Foreshadowing. Photo foreshadowing. Real-life like, foreshadowing. It's like real-life foreshadowing. <laughs> Without knowing Without it. knowing it's foreshadowing. Probably listening back to the CVR later. It was like, oh. Well. Oh. Those of you that don't know about this accident, you can probably use your deductive reasoning skills to figure out what happened. Yeah. For those few of you who don't know. The Hudson is a river in New York. <laughs> if you didn't know, now, now you know. know. Anyway, at 3, 27 and 10 seconds, that's just about two minutes after takeoff, Captain Sullenberger said, Birds. Followed by the first hopster skyle saying, Whoa. Birds. Birds. Look at those birds. birds. <laughs> <laughs> One second later, thumps and thuds were heard on the CVR, followed by a shuddering sound. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't Given that this is our bird strike series, I hope you all understand what is happening. They done struck some birds. They don't they don't hit some birds. Flight fifteen forty nine struck a flock of birds at an altitude of two thousand eight hundred feet. AGL or above ground level. That's 855 meters. For all who care. For those of you that For those of you who are smart and use the metric system. I would also like to say that they use meters in other countries, even in aviation. You are right, because we have had reports in the past that have meters instead of feet. Anyway, I mean, yes, generally a lot of like Europe will use we'll feet. Use feet. Yeah. And like I think usually flight levels, like with air traffic control, are still in feet. So, right. But sometimes stuff is in meters. Anyway. Sometimes. Anyway. The sounds of the engines had decreased, so they got nice and quiet in the cabin. Nice and quiet? Nice and quiet for your pleasure, air, air, you know, traveling pleasure. You're, you're, it's for convenience. The lights go out, too, to help you sleep through this <laughs> rest of a you flight. Know, when you're trying to like read the newspaper or enjoy a movie on your phone, it's really annoying when the engines are running, you know? <laughs> it's like, wow, can you like quiet down those engines? They're so inconvenient. Because, in fact, three seconds after impacting birds, first officer stated, uh-oh, followed by the captain stating, we got both of them rolling back. That is the thrust from both engines. Engines? That's why it got nice and quiet. At 3.27 and 18 seconds, Sullenberger said, ignition start, and attempted to restart the engines. This is just a kind of a quick restart, the little tiny knob, move it to the ignition, and in hopes that they can get it going that way. Otherwise, they have to go through the whole Checklist. restart procedure. Yeah. Two seconds later, knowing that they would lose electrical power quickly without the engines, because 
they provide electrical power. They Captain, are generators. All right. Captain Silverberger said, I'm starting the APU. Reached up and started the APU. Which, by the way, super smart because you need uh, engines provide electrical power to so a lot. If they go out, there's you don't no have, electricity. <laughs> and you don't have instruments. You don't have, you, you're, there's no heat in yeah, the there's cabin. No, there's no, there's yeah, you're going to be super uncomfortable. Yeah. So That's it obviously was really smart that he was like, you know, I'm just going to flip. Also, Boop. on the Airbus, you kind of need the power because the... You it's can't automated. Yeah, the, the fly-by-wire system don't work. I mean, the, there's backup things, but it's going to be severely compromised. Without electricity. The captain then took over control of flying from the aircraft from First Officer and instructed First Officer Skiles to review the quick reference handbook for loss of thrust on both engines. Quick reference handbook, if you don't know, is quite a thick book. It's very thick. With three C's. We got one. It's big. <laughs> their their definition of quick is um, arguable. <laughs> but it is organized in a way where you can find stuff pretty quickly. So, Solenberger made a, made a call to air traffic control. From here, we pick up the ATC audio equipment recording of this incident just a quick reminder that this is just from the air traffic controls perspective not from the cockpit they're not the cockpit voice recorders so we don't hear conversations between the, the cockpit, captain yeah. yeah we don't hear the ca- uh, captain and the first officer having conversations unless they talk to atc yeah and then some things to note, note are that uh he also talks to newark tower and teterboro tower on new jersey new jersey new jersey and not to mention, he's also dealing with some other aircraft. In the area. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you're going to listen to that right now. Cactus 15.9, turn left heading 270. Uh, this is uh, Cactus 15.39, hit first through lost thrust on both engines, returning back towards LaGuardia. Okay, uh, you need to return to LaGuardia. Turn left heading of uh, 220. 220. Tyler, stop your departure. He's got emergency returning. It's 1529. He, he uh, bird strike. He lost all engine. He lost the thrust in the engines. He's returning immediately. Cactus 1529. Which engines? He lost thrust in both engines. He said. Got it. Cactus 1529. If we can get it for you. Do you want to try to land 1913? We're unable. We may end up in the Hudson. Joint 2760. Turn left 070. 070. Joint 2760. Hi, Cactus 15.9. It's going to be left traffic to runway 31. Unable. Okay, what do you need to land? Cactus 15.9. Runway 4 is available if you want to make left traffic to runway 4. What's over to our right? Anything in New Jersey? Maybe Teterboro? Okay, yeah, off your right side is Peterborough Airport. Do you want to try to go to Teterboro? Yes. Teterboro, uh, Empire, actually, LaGuardia departure guy, emergency inbound. Hey, guys. Cactus 1529 over the George Washington Bridge wants to go to the airport right now. Wants to go to our airport, check. Does he need assistance? Uh, yes, he, uh, it was a bird strike. Can I get him in for, uh, runway 1? Runway 1, that's good. Cactus 1529, turn right 280, can land runway right. 1 at Teterboro. We can't do it. Okay, which runway would you like at Teterboro? We're going to be in the Hudson. I'm, I'm sorry, say again, Cactus? Thrilling. Thrilling. So? So that's from the perspective of the... Air traffic, air traffic controller. controller. I just wanted to put that in there because he did a fantastic job. Textbook, even though 
what he did was not of use. Yeah, yeah. He still he was like trying to help him, trying to get to different airports, all this stuff, you know. And this was a to... super unique situation, right? And it was handled well across the board, right? I will say, listening to that footage, basically, it gives me chills every time. Yeah. The second that he says we're going into the Hudson, it's like oh. Oh. Yeah. Like, oh, no. (laughs) Because up till that point, ditching a plane was considered unsurvivable. You're going to have deaths. Right. You're listening to the moment where he reconciles with himself as people are going to die. Pretty much. Anyway, that was deep. (laughs) That was really deep. Hashtag deep. Now let's take a step back into the cockpit of Cactus 1549. Let's pick up where we left off. At 3.27 and 50 seconds, this is 39 seconds after impacting the birds, First Officer Skiles began conducting Part 1 of the QRH Engine Dual Failure Checklist. Since there is no recording of the cockpit voice recorder, yours truly is going to be reading the parts of both pilots. First Officer stated, uh, if fuel remaining, engine mode selector ignition. Captain responded, ignition. First officer stated, thrust reverses confirm idle. Captain responded, idle. Four seconds later, the first officer stated, airspeed optimal relight 300 knots. We don't have that. The captain responded, we don't. No. (laughs) Can confirm. Can confirm. I believe at this point they were probably like, maybe 200 knots, but they were starting to slow down a lot. And the only way to get 300 knots is to to descend. Yeah. And we don't have much air below you. To not, get enough airspeed. Yeah, that's not really much of an option. The stuttering sound that started shortly after the bird strike had ceased at that point. First officer Skiles continued the checklist stating, Emergency electrical power, emergency generator, not online. The captain said, it's online. The first officer said, ATC notified. Which they had done already. Yes. Check. At 3.28 and 25 seconds, the captain stated... The left one, the engine, coming back up a little bit. 20 seconds later, the captain was communicating with ATC when the first officer stated FAC, or the flight augmentation computer, one off, then on. 15 seconds later, the first officer stated no relight after 30 seconds, engine master one and two confirmed. At 329, 11 seconds, the captain announced over the public address system, the PA, this is the captain, brace for impact. At this point in the cabin, the flight attendants would start yelling something like, It's like brace, brace, bend over, heads heads down, down, stay down. Yeah, heads down, stay down. That's what it is. It's always something a little bit different. When so we are for the record, we are not using the movie Sully as any reference for this episode, but I will say in watching that reenactment, that part gives me chills. Every time. When the flight attendants Ugh. just yell in unison, heads down, stay down, brace, brace. It's like, oh, mm. God. And it's quiet, by the way. Because there's no engine. Yeah. So that's all you're hearing. <laughs> right. <sighs> Three seconds after making the PA announcement, the CVR recorded the ground proximity warning system, or the GPWS. The alert sounded at 1,000. Meaning they were? 1,000 feet above the ground. Yep. At 3.29, 16 seconds, first officer stated, Engine Master 2, back on. And the captain responded, back on. So they were trying to relight 
the number two engine. The engine, yeah. At 329, 27 seconds, the engine master switch was moved from the off position and then turned back on. The first officer said, no relight, and the captain replied, okay, let's go with the flaps out. Pull the flaps out. First officer Skiles extended the flaps to setting two on the A320, which... I we, think we determined is around 15 around degrees. Around 15, yeah. Something like that. So, about 15 degrees worth of flaps. Five seconds later, First Officer Skiles asked Sullenberger, Is that all the power you got? Wanna number one? Or we got power number one? So, he's referring to when the captain said we got a little bit oh, of power. Power back, yeah. Number one. At 3.30 and one second, First Officer stated, Got flaps out 200 and... 50 feet in the air. He then stated, 270 knots, got no power in either one, try the other one. The captain stated, try the other one. First officer Skiles tried to relight engine number two. After that failed relight, the first officer informed the captain, 150 knots, got flaps two, want more? The captain replied, no, let's stay at two. So, Which at this point, there's no checklist that he's working off of. He's just like, nope, that, that nope, feels that's right. Good. Yep, that's right. fine. <laughs> The benefit of more flaps would be that they could, more fly, stabilized. they could fly slower, but the problem with adding, they'd generate more lift, but you'd s- slow down more. Yeah. Yeah. If you take some flaps out, you would fly faster, but potentially you won't have much extra a little bit lift. less stabilized. Yeah. Yeah. Captain Solberger then asked Skiles, got any ideas? To which the first officer responded, actually, not. Which, and that's. Really good crew yeah. resource management. It's like, I'm fresh out of ideas. You got anything? Like, yeah. He's not the only pilot in the cockpit. He may be the captain, but he's like, I don't know. You have uh, any ideas? I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Plus all that stuff beforehand, giving out readouts for altitude and speed. When Nick was actually talking about this, we'll actually talk about this just a second. We'll bring it up here. At 3.30 and 24 seconds to the ground proximity warning system issued a terrain, terrain warning, followed by pull, pull up. up. Which, which repeated till the end of the flight. And was heard in the cabin, mm-hmm. which is horrific. Pull up. Pull, pull up. Pull, pull up. up. Now, the aircraft should have been giving call-outs on altitude as well. Uh, not speed, but mostly altitude. And you get like the 500, Five. 450, 40, you know, yeah. that stuff. But the airplane prioritizes warnings. That's not a priority. At this point, they were worried that they were going to crash. So into the, terrain, yeah, which, so to be fair, they did. The plane was like, hey, what are you doing? Stop doing that. Please pull up. <laughs> but it would have been much more beneficial to them if they would have had the actual countdown. Yeah, it's like, we know, we're aware, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but when you're landing on water, there's actually illusions that occur, so it makes it very difficult to tell how high you are off of the water. Yep, any sort of seaplane pilot knows those very well. And one day, maybe I'll get those. One day. (laughs) Before impact, the captain said, we're going to brace to the first officer. And at approximately 3.31 p.m., almost four minutes after striking the birds, in a nose-high attitude, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 makes an unpowered ditching into the middle of the Hudson River. Side note, is there an official brace position for the flight crew? I'm actually not aware of that. In the movie, they did depict them just putting their arm up against the dashboard, or the glare shield, like it's supposed to be called. Yeah. I assume that's probably going to be the best thing, 
though I feel like you're going to break your arm if you do that. Yeah, yeah. because of the impact. The, uh, the other thing would be, like, crossing your arms across the but, front and bracing your head. resting them on the instruments? That doesn't sound great either. Well, well, it's better than nothing. At least on the wanna... Airbus, you don't have a big yoke in front of you. That yeah. is true. I didn't think about that. Yeah. I mean, it's better than, you know, hitting your head on it. If you rest your head on your arms. Any pilots out there listening? Can, Let us can know. You please tell me. Thank you. Thanks. The aircraft was substantially damaged in the ditching, but the airframe remained intact. Which is kind of incredible, all things considered. Yeah. We'll get into why that is later on. Only seconds after coming to a stop in the water, crew members and passengers initiated the evacuation of the airplane. The overwing window exits were the first to open. Flight attendant C, who was seen in the forward left, left to them because they're facing backwards, like it would be the right side for everyone else. Yes. Oh, and I was going to say starboard side, but they're both <laughs> on the port side. <laughs> the flight attendant C opened the one R door, the front right door, and the slide raft, I'm going to talk about that in just a second, inflated automatically. However, the door started to close during the evacuation. Fearing this would puncture the slide raft, she assigned an able-bodied, in quotations, man to hold the door <laughs> open and keep it off the slide raft. Would you like to go ahead? I, I just want to say that women are also able to do so. People are able can be able-bodied regardless ev- ev- of gender. Yes, everybody can do that. It didn't have to be a man, but whatever. Well, maybe maybe she was having a hard time holding the door open, so that's fair. She got someone who looked pretty strong. We I don't. Mean, anyone who looked strong could have done it. Yeah, I realized why she would choose a man, but like, you're in an emergency situation. You don't got time to it's worry not about genders. Time for gender <laughs> gender roles. <laughs> now. These slide rafts were actually slides and rafts. It's an important distinction because on some aircraft, they are either slide rafts or they are just slides. So, this is where we're going to start this rant. And it will continue throughout the majority of this episode of please review your safety cards when you board an aircraft. Because it tells you where there are rafts, whether slides are rafts. Which exits you can use in a water landing and which you can't. Yeah, we'll get into that, too. Mm. Mm. But yeah, but seriously, like, because if it's not supposed to be a raft, what you're supposed to do is, the slide will stay inflated in the water, but it just won't... Float. Yeah, I mean, it will float, but you can't, like, pile Detach a bunch it. of people in there. Yeah. yeah. So but on, on those ones, you can just hang on to the side of it, which would have been not good in this case. No. Anyway, so there's the difference between regular slides and slide rafts. The other forward flight attendant, flight attendant A, opened the one L door, or the forward left on the port side. This door was able to lock against the fuselage. However, the slide raft did not automatically inflate. Here's, here's, okay, go The ahead. first passenger to reach the one L door noticed that the slide did not inflate and jumped into the frigid waters of the Hudson River. <laughs> it was only after this did the flight attendant actually pull the manual inflation handle to inflate the slide raft. Which exists... <laughs> Which you would know if you read the safety card. And then you wouldn't have to yeet yourself <laughs> out of the aircraft. Also, I'm pretty sure they weren't wearing a life jacket. You guys are just we jumping, will get to that you're later. Jumping, you're jumping way ahead here. It's I know, fine. but don't just yeet yourself out of an aircraft if you don't see a flotation device somewhere, okay? Wait for 
people who are authorized to do things to do things, please. I believe in an interview with him, he said that he was going to try to swim to shore. Okay. <laughs> which on a nice August summer day would have probably been fine. This is January. The water at the time was 41 degrees Fahrenheit or 5 degrees Celsius. You can't, by the way, you can't warm up in that water. No. It's too cold. Doesn't matter how much you move. After the slide was inflated, he went back and climbed in. Yeah. <laughs> the B flight attendant, who's sitting in the uh, rear of the aircraft, not in the galley, though. She was sitting, if you look at the, the diagram, it's actually sitting on a pull-out seat kind of next to the entrance to the laboratories. Gotcha. So she wasn't all the way back. I think she was blocking the labs. Hmm. Is that what it looks like? So she would have been seated on the right side of the aircraft facing the left side of the aircraft. Gotcha. Yeah, that's correct. So she was not facing forward or aft. So she's on the right side so the starboard side facing the port side. Terminology of... <laughs> Boats. <laughs> and airplanes. Technically. They, sort of. They don't use bow and stern, but they use... Port, port. and... They definitely use port side. That's where you load everyone. Gotcha. In the port. Okay. Get your nautical knowledge, people. <laughs> Moving on. Anyway. So flight attendant B went to the aft galley to assess the situation, at which one of the passengers went to and began to open and crack open the 2L door. This was a problem because that door was mostly submerged underwater. Yeah. Uh... Water started to become... Quickly started to fill the cabin, even though it was already starting to enter the cabin. Her and other passengers began directing other passengers towards the front of the aircraft, even telling young, able-bodied passengers to climb over the seats. This is just all young, able-bodied passengers to get away from the water. I actually thought I was thinking about this the other night, the last night too, but they could have been doing that for the people that... You know, to get up the aisle quicker for the people that couldn't climb over the seats. Yeah, so that the so those people can be out of the way. So, yeah, so, so there's the, less people in the aisle. So the younger people can get out of the water, and the people that can't climb over the seats were able to move up the aisle quicker. Yeah. So they're spider monkeying over. Keep in mind, seatbacks. That, that would be us. <laughs> that would be us. Yep. <laughs> spider monkeying over seatbacks. Keep in mind, the aircraft is mostly underwater in the back. In the back. And. Mostly above water up, yeah. in the, the front. So most of the water was filling up from the back forward. Some passengers were bottlenecked at the overwing exits. Therefore, the flight attendants called them forward. As a result, some of the mid and aft located passengers exited from the forward doors. Yep. I don't know why the overwing exits were so popular. There well, might be a, have been the closest exit to right. some people. You'll see that on the, on the diagram. There is a diagram on our website that depicts where... Each passenger exited the plane. It's color-coded. If you're colorblind, I'm sorry. I tried. <laughs> Blame the NTSB. Yep, that's where we got yeah, that. They're, that. They're the ones who made it. So. Um, because you'll notice that like five or so rows in front of the overwing exits, they all went to the overwing exits because yeah. it was closest. But in a situation where you can't use the rear doors, which they didn't know, it's probably best if everyone in front of the overwing exits goes Go to forward. The, yeah, everyone just moves forward. But... They didn't know that time. That's totally fine. Anyway. It's fine. A handful of passengers went onto the wings, but then re-entered the aircraft and then exited out one of the forward doors onto the slide rafts. Because so, it was crowded. Yeah. So you'll see some of those have two colors. Yep. That's the people that went out onto the wings and then came back in and went out a different exit. Yep. Which kind of seems dangerous and it 
maybe in hindsight, maybe probably was a little bit, but you're standing on the wing, There's you're standing in cold water, it's slippery, it's wet, and to be able to just go over to the life raft, there's probably a, a nice, better, nice, easier. sound like a nice option. Captain Sullenberger and First Officer Scouts uh, went out to help aid with the evacuation. During that time, the First Officer noticed a number of passengers that had evacuated without taking a flotation device. So he grabbed some life vests from underneath the seats and began to distribute them to passengers outside of the aircraft. Okay, here's where we get into this rant on listen to the safety briefing because they tell you where to find your life jacket. Let's piss off Miranda. Allow me to read you some stats that will really make you upset. Every seat has one. Every seat. Even in 2009. This aircraft was especially equipped with them because they did not have to have life jackets, life vests. They had the floaty seat cushions that they could just rip off, but they had the uh, uh, life vest anyway. All right. The information provided by the passengers also indicates the following occurred during the flight and evacuation. 25 passengers, that's 17% of my just a reminder that there are 150 passengers on board. So 25 of them reported watching most of the pre-flight safety demonstration. Which you watch most of it. That's probably about what I do, too. Yeah, that's 17%. That is. An additional 19 passengers, 13%, reported watching some of the demonstration. So that's, what, a total of 30% of the aircraft yep. only watching some or some. most of the demonstration. Only 30%. Of 150 people. 12 passengers, which is 8%, reported reading the safety information card before or during flight. Which, like, great thing to do when the engines go out. You're like, oh, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. But also, you should be looking at those before every flight. If you're not going to listen to the safety demonstration, which you should do anyway, you should at least be looking at the safety card in the back of the seat. I kind of get it for the safety demonstration. All the life jackets are the same. I get it. But the exits, the life rafts, the locations of all of these things are different plane to plane. Which exits you can use and which kind of landing are different plane to plane. I don't remember them. I travel somewhat frequently, I'd like to think. Like, I always look. I always check. Always. I also figure out how to open all of the doors and windows, like, for, like, safety exit stuff, Mm -hmm. assuming people don't read them and can't do it. Which is, based on this, kind of a safe assumption. A total of 77 passengers, about half of them, retrieved a seat cushion during the evacuation. Of those, 45 of them received a seat cushion from their own seat, 27 from a different seat, and five had found one floating in the cabin. Well, I guess this one will work. <laughs> it's like, it's floating. Let's take this. This is when it gets a little upsetting. A little disappointing. Five passengers reported retrieving a life vest from under their seat after impact. An additional five reported retrieving a life vest from another seat after impact. So a total of ten passengers had exited the aircraft with a life vest. Which is awful! It's under every seat. Every person had a life jacket. Every one of them. Yep, that is correct. Ten people had one when they left the aircraft. 
21 passengers, about 14%, reported being given a life vest, probably from the flight crew or the cabin crew, during or after they had evacuated. So... So a total of, was it, 31 passengers had life vests, and assuming that people didn't double up on flotation devices, that means 104 passengers... Had some sort of... Had some kind of flotation device. Leaving... What were all of these other people doing? Leaving 46 people without any kind of flotation. Uh, On the Hudson. Trying... Well, there's that one person that just freaking yeeted out of the aircraft. Thinking he's going (laughs) to swim to shore in January. Um, And a lot of them are like, I'm a good swimmer. I don't need this. And then you hit 41 degree water and you're like, um... Captain Silberg and First Officer Skiles inspected the aircraft to ensure that no cabin crew or passengers remained on board. As they should. Good. And then exited out of the L1 door. Now that everyone's outside the airplane, everything's okay, right? No. No. Uh. They're in the middle of the Hudson. They are (laughs) in in the middle of the river. Where the water, remember, is 41 degrees Fahrenheit, 5 degrees Celsius. People's lives are still at risk, especially those that had jumped or fell in. And eventually, the people on the wings would be sinking with the airplane. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. During the whole emergency sequence, when the airplane was still in the air, air traffic control it activated the emergency alert notification system using the red crash telephone. You're very excited about that telephone. This was at 3.28 and 53 seconds. This alerts various airport offices, including the airport police at LaGuardia. And it also notifies emergency response agencies, including the United States Coast Guard the New York Police Department, the Fire Department of New York, and Emergency Medical Services. The NYPD, the New York Police Department, upon notification of the accident, transmitted a level 3 mobilization. Which basically means if you're going to go out to that accident, you better be bringing some people and some stuff. Yep. They broadcasted it to the rest of the NYPD, the FDNY, the Fire Department of New York, the Emergency Medical Services... New York Office of Emergency Management, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, also known as the FBI, and the Red Cross. New York has a really bad time with planes. Uh, yeah. That's probably the only reason why they call the FBI. Yeah. Make sure it's not a hijacking or something. Because they have a really bad time with planes. Yeah, they do. The aircraft was ditched on the Hudson River near the New York Waterway Port Imperial Ferry Terminal in Weehawken, New Jersey. Weehawken. Dawn. Guns. Drawn. <laughs> You're on. <laughs> okay. It's too bad. I like Hoboken more. Some of the ferry captains had witnessed the crash firsthand and started to head directly to the incident site. Other captains were notified by radio. Less than four minutes after the initiation of the evacuation, the first ferry arrived at the aircraft. Which is, like, really good. And according to Nick, this was the ferry that he and I took when we were in New York a couple of years ago. I'd have no recollection of that. I do remember the, the ferry, but I don't remember it being the same one. one. I yeah. t- take his word for it. I take his word for it. He was very confident he, he, yeah, and excited. Yeah, he looked it up after, so... It's pretty cool. In total, seven ferries, a New York Fire Department boat, and two United States Coast Guard boats were used to take all 155 survivors to shore and take them to designated triage sites. So everyone had survived. Everyone survived, which is like 
Amazing. Also, good on those fairies for, like, seeing what happened and being like, oh, oh we need to go. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't mention it, but the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, as with collaboration from the New York Waterway Ferries, seven months prior to this accident, had conducted a open table in order to conduct a rescue operation practice thing. Mm-hmm. And when it came time to do the actual practice... The ferry company was denied the right to participate. The right to participate, yeah. Which is dumb. And it was only the, the, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. This was seven months prior to the accident. And no, now. No doubt, now they are required to participate. Yes. Thank goodness. They're like the main reason everyone got out of the water and got to shore. I believe yeah. the first boat that was not a ferry arrived 13 minutes after the goodness yeah um, which is a long time to sit the, there and freezing in freezing cold the water freaking cold water well yeah. and ferries can take a lot of people that's correct so they probably were able to get everyone to shore a lot faster because the ferries can take a lot of people mm-hmm. that's what they're meant to do for the injuries one cabin crew and four passengers were seriously injured 95 passengers received minor injuries Two flight crew, two cabin crew, and 51 other passengers received no injuries. Which is incredible, Which, all on yeah, its own. again. This was not thought to be possible, at all. Everyone survived. A few serious injuries, probably some whiplash, but other than that... Maybe the guy who yeeted himself... Into the water? Yeet. Yeah. Hypothermia on top of impact? Actually, hypothermia is not considered a serious injury. Wow. I mean, it's recoverable. According to the NTSB. Okay. This investigation was performed by the... EASA. NTSB. The National... I'll dramatic. The Nigerian Board of Aviation Safety. The National Transportation Safety Board. NBAS. Oh, my God. With the assistance of the BEA from France and the Smithsonian Institution. The Aviation... No. No. <laughs> Good you got, try. You got the bia, bia, Both of the black boxes were recovered from the wreckage, though it took quite a while. Since the water was so cold, it took two days to finally get the wreckage out of the Hudson and onto a barge. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. If you look at the pictures from it, there's just ice. Everywhere. On top of all the water. Yes. It is January in New York. It's I wonder cold. how that would have changed the crash, The I guess the ditching. Oh, if they've if hit ice? ice? Oh, I didn't even think of that. Better or worse? Well, it probably would have damaged the aircraft a little bit more. I don't know. Or it would have slowed it down. I don't know. Who knows? I don't know. Both recorders were sent to Washington, D.C. for analysis and were able to be read out in full, which you can kind of infer from Brendan's wonderful narration. Thank you. One of the investigator's first and foremost investigation points was not anything like what the movie Sully depicted. What was more of a concern for the aviation industry as a whole was the bird strike itself and the fact that it did actually bring down a commercial airliner. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. That doesn't happen. I mean, like, we covered a couple that happened, but since those had happened, numbers had gone down drastically. The stupid f***ing birds shouldn't bring down an airliner. Well, that's the theory anyway. Between the NTSB, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, or the USDA, what, what? and General Electric, otherwise known as GE, 
A total of 62 samples were recovered from the wreckage and brought to the Smithsonian Institution National Museum of Natural History Division of Birds Feather Identification Laboratory. Can you run that by me one more time? (laughs) Can you abbreviate it? What's the acronym for that? (laughs) S-I-N-M-N-H-D-B-F-I-L. The acronym is even worse than the actual (laughs) saying of it. In Washington, D.C. for analysis and identification. Now, although Hollywood makes it seem like DNA analysis is super fast and easy, it's not. I know, it takes like weeks. The lab did submit 39 samples for testing, of which 18 actually had viable avian DNA, but that takes time to analyze. In the meantime, the laboratory took the samples of feathers and compared them to their extensive inventory of birds, as in, like, preserved birds. Birds. For identification. What do they call it? Um, taxidermy. Taxidermy. There we go. Yep. We watched a documentary on it, and they actually had, like, a bird that Roosevelt had taxidermied. Mm. They just had it in their warehouse, which they have an extensive warehouse of birds. Before I continue, you might have the same question that Brendan kept having while watching this documentary. Why does it matter? What kind of bird it is. Well, these engines are certified to continue operating after striking a certain kind of bird, a certain size of bird. If the bird that was ingested by these engines was the same size or smaller than the certification standards, there's a really big problem because the engines shouldn't have failed. Yeah. On the other hand, if they were larger birds, well, the engines weren't at fault. They weren't certified to handle it. Right. Back to the identification. 53 of these samples were used for feather identification, 50 of which came directly from the engines, and they were identified as Canada geese. The average weight of these is 7.3 up to 9.2 pounds, though according to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, male Canada geese can reach 14 pounds. What a honker. (laughs) God. As we have said in a previous episode, chonky. It's a chonky bird. Chonk bird. The DNA results did eventually come back and confirm that the birds were Branta canadensis, or Canada geese. The DNA, however, was too degraded to pick out individual birds' DNA to determine exactly how many birds were ingested, but there was enough remaining to determine that there were at least two ingested by the left engine and one by the right engine as determined by DNA sexing. Basically, there was enough DNA to say, well, a male and a female went into this engine and a male went into that engine. So that makes three that we can confirm. Well, what were the engines certified to handle? This engine, the CFM56-5B4-P, was certificated in 1996 and had to meet the bird ingestion requirements in 14 Code of Federal Regulations 33.77 for an object ingestion. Amendment 3311 was added in 1984, and that, along with the Amendment 33-10, stated that, quote, Ingestion of a four-pound large-sized bird may not cause the engine to catch fire, burst, generate loads greater than those specified in this section, or lose the capability of being shut down. Ingestion of three-ounce birds or one-and-a-half-pound medium birds may not cause more than a sustained 25% power or thrust loss, require the engine to be shut down within five minutes from time of ingestion, or result in a potentially hazardous condition. You know, like this one. Yeah. According to Section 33, the medium bird ingestion criterion for this engine was seven one-and-a-half-pound birds volleyed, 
like, catapulted. <laughs> Yeeted. Yeeted. <laughs> Playing tennis with pigeons. Into critical areas of the engine. Two birds were volleyed into the engine core area, and five birds were volleyed into the fan blade area at mid-span, outer panel, and two intermediate locations in rapid sequence to simulate a flock encounter. The large bird ingestion criterion for the engine was a single four-pound bird volleyed into a critical area of the fan, but not the core area. To comply with these requirements, the engine was subjected to a medium bird test, which was intended to test the fan blade structure and core machinery for resistance to impact from and ingestion of multiple medium-sized birds. The engine was also subjected to a large bird test, which was intended to test the fan blades, fluid lines, and support structure for resistance to impact from and ingestion of a single large bird. These tests were performed with the engine at 100% takeoff power. End quote. So from all of that, the engines were not certificated to handle a flock of geese. Just smaller no. birds. Just smaller birds. The NTSB conducted a performance study using video caught on a surveillance camera, the CVR, the FDR, Newark's radar data, and weather data. Both engines were at takeoff power at 85% N1, which is the low-pressure engine spool. After the bird strike, the left engine dropped to 35% and the right engine plummeted to 15%. As such, the airspeed dropped, though they did still climb up to 3,060 feet before beginning to fall and speed up. What damage would cause such a thing? The first fundamental thing to understand about engines is that not all air that is sucked into the engine actually goes into the engine core. The part that does is called the core airflow, and the rest goes around it and is called the bypass airflow. This is relevant because a bird strike to the engine will do a lot more damage if it strikes more towards the center of the engine as it is more likely to go into the core. Both engines had damage to the fan such that a bird was very near the inner radius of the engine inlet and some of the bird went into the core. There was additional damage though that indicated each engine had a second bird strike further out from the center of each engine and did not go into the engine core. It is worth noting, though, that none of the fan blades were significantly damaged, which, reading between the lines, means that they effectively diced up the birds. Yeah. Chippity chop. Chop. That's nice when you're trying to cook, you know. I mean, that's what the Indians do. They dice and cook all in one. I get, yeah, you're I guess. not wrong. What about defeathering the birds? You know, it's, the Indians <laughs> mostly just bring them to a char, so. Yeah, they burn all the feathers <laughs> off. Yeah, so. It's terrible. I don't see what the problem is. <laughs> Once the bird was in the core, two low-pressure compressor inlet guide vanes in each engine were fractured and ingested into the core, causing more damage to the compressors, enough that the engines could no longer sustain rotation to produce thrust. Additionally, the left engine had high-pressure compressor variable guide vane damage that blocked most of the airflow through the compressor, which truly led to the loss of left engine power. The right engine's airflow was not fully blocked in the same way, but many of the compressor blades were broken, leading to a loss of a directional control of the airflow into the compressor, causing continuous stalling and surging, and eventual loss of power. Yeah. Quote, In summary, the NTSB concludes that both engines were operating normally until they each ingested at least two large birds weighing about eight pounds each, one of which was ingested into each engine core, causing mechanical damage that prevented the engines from being able to provide sufficient thrust to sustain flight, end quote. Despite all this damage, the low-pressure compressors continued to rotate, 
and there was no loss of combustion, which is why the first officer couldn't relight the engines. Because they were already lit. They were still lit. Uh-huh. But even if they had turned them off and tried to turn them back on, they wouldn't have turned There's back on. There's too much damage. Right. It's, it, they're done for. There's Pointless. No, yeah. They're dead. They ingested 16 pounds of bird each. They're dead. Minimum. Ugh. On average. <laughs> we'll never know for sure. Tell me some chonkers. <laughs> Those are some chonkers. Quote, the NTSB notes that it is unreasonable to expect pilots to properly diagnose complex engine problems and take appropriate corrective actions while they are st- encountering an emergency condition under critical time constraints. End quote. You know, like when you have less than 2,000 feet of altitude to work with. Yeah. Thanks. Right. That being said, engines are becoming more developed with full authority digital engine controls, a.k.a. FADEX, which can help crews figure out how to respond to engine failures. At the time of this report, though, that technology was still limited to saying, there's a problem, as opposed to, there's this kind of problem. The report cites that there was work being done with NASA and GE and the Navy and everyone and their mother on this subject, but I don't know where exactly that technology is today. No, I think about it. I think it is actually in aircraft. Because I've heard FADEC being used. I've heard of FADEC, but the do they still just say, there's a problem, or there's this kind of problem? FADEC in the PCS and the next gen 737s replaces the hydromechanical control on 737 Okay. Damage detection. From BAE, BAE Systems, FADEC, full authority digital engine control. BAE Systems does a lot of aerospace stuff so yeah it's probably advanced from whatever it was at the time of this report i just don't have the data to say exactly what it is yeah yeah the ntsb spoke with industry leaders like engine manufacturers and the faa who all came to the consensus that building an engine to withstand an eight pound bird would be unrealistic because the engine's performance and weight would both suffer As a whole, the industry considers the current certification requirements to already be very stringent and have prevented a number of disasters. Which is true. I mean... Yeah. You can handle a flock of birds. Just not... Geese. No. Small birds. Starlings, for example. But not geese. That come from Canada. (laughs) Freaking Canada. The NTSB did go into current certification testing to try to find methods that would be even more stringent than the current certification methods. For example, tests are performed at 100% fan speed, whereas if they were run at a lower speed, more of the bird would end up in the engine itself, making the test more difficult to pass and therefore more stringent. Current testing for the large flocking bird ingestion only ingests one bird. And not directed at the core, but rather at the fan blades, the fluid lines, and the support structure. Furthermore, this test is only done for large engines and does not include the engine on this aircraft. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but this engine was not required to have that test because of the surface area of its engine inlet. Yeah. Since this clearly showed that large birds can be ingested by smaller transport aircraft, maybe they should have tested for large bird ingestion too. Yeah, because it's not like the birds mean to go into the engine. Um, you kind of just hit them and they go, foop. Just like that? Yeah. Foop. Foop. Contrary <laughs> to what us pilots say, birds are not suicidal. No. no. They don't mean to run into your engine. They just do. It happens. That is all I've got. So we all take a break it a break. Break it a break. We'll get back. We'll have Nick. We'll talk more about human factors and stuff. And the crew. 
and we'll talk about findings and wrecks and stuff. Which is super thrilling. <laughs> That's not sarcastic, but it is actually pretty cool stuff. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back. Whoa! When did you get here? I'm back! <laughs> no, you've been here the whole time. You need to speak up more. Hi. <laughs> uh, so next year. <laughs> Hello. Oh, come I'm on. Back. That could have been actually really good. It would. It, we told them that Nick would be on this part of the episode. Yeah, but they didn't know that he wasn't there the first half. Well, he, he didn't talk at all. That's why I said he was quiet the first half. He can't keep his mouth shut. That was uh, so unrealistic. That's probably why the first part's probably no, a little it's, bit shorter it's fine. than just, the first just, time we recorded just, it. Just move on. Just. It's like, yeah, I was here for the first half. They just had my mouth duct taped. (laughs) It took me that whole first half just to try to rip that thing off. If you listen closely, you can hear me going, (laughs) We told you that was the fans. That that high-pitched whine is not the fans. It was me. (laughs) Slowly peeling duct tape off my face. Anyway... (laughs) Let's continue with the analysis of this investigation. Yes, that. Which you're covering. Yeah, I am. Because it was a lot for me. It was a lot. So I'm jumping in now with a little bit different perspective this time. We're, instead of covering uh, the bird portion, we're actually covering the plane portion. And, and the human. And the human portion. Human. A human other, factor. Yes, that. The other very important thing. The NTSB worked tirelessly on this act to determine how the accident sequence played out, and what factors did and didn't work in order to ensure that accidents such as these should become even more safe for passengers and crews. So they really wanted to figure out, like, if something like this were to happen again, obviously this was very safe because everybody survived, but how do we make it even more safe? You know, that's always kind of the goal, right? Is one, make this not happen at all, and two... If it does, how how do we make it even safer? Yeah, which is important. They spent a lot of time running simulations to determine if the flight would have had enough time to land on a runway at an airport, whether it be LaGuardia or Teterboro, and also to determine the probability that pulling off a ditching maneuver in the Hudson, like the crew performed, would be possible to duplicate and maintain survivability. This is key, and they really wanted to use these simulations to prove a lot of things, and we'll get to this more later, but basically they wanted to prove that the airplane could have made it to an airport in the situation they were in, or not. And that landing in the Hudson basically twice, or ditching this airplane, duplicating that maneuver, was even possible. These simulations included the help of, are you ready for this? The NTSB Operations and Human Performance Group, Airbus, U.S. Airways, the U.S. Airlines Pilots Association, and the BEA. Still so, not the longest. come on, rookie list. Yeah. No, it is not the longest rookie list in this episode. numbers. I know. <laughs> I know. But that's still a lot of people deeply involved in just simulating this accident. Well, they ain't going to re- replicate it in an actual airplane. No. I, I really hope not. That's expensive. <laughs> Cruising along. Okay, release the geese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was terrible. Uh, the data from that one was all screwed up. Let's try it again. <laughs> all right, we need another Airbus. Yeah. 
the simulations were programmed with conditions as close as possible to those encountered by Flight 1549. So this included weather, winds, you know, conditions for that day. Just in general, everything was very similar. And they even went down so far as to make the crews take off and climb out as normal. And they made them perform all the same speeds, flap settings, everything, as they were in the airplane, to replicate as close as possible. Flight crews were briefed before each simulation and would take action immediately after their presumed bird strike. Out of these simulations, all proved that the plane could have landed back at LaGuardia or Teterboro. However, none of the ditching simulations were able to perfectly or exactly replicate what was achieved by the flight crew of Flight 1549. So in other words, they couldn't make a survivable ditching in the Hudson in any of the simulations. A 100% survivable, I should say. Well, it's partly because if you imagine impacting anything, like we talked about this before, water's like concrete. Yes. It is an incompressible fluid. And it turns out it compressed the fuselage (laughs) at the rear on this airplane. So it, it doesn't really surprise me that they couldn't perfectly replicate what happened. Yeah. All of this said, AvGeeks and anyone who's seen the movie solely or even really knows about this incident knows what comes next. The initial simulations had briefed crews who knew what to expect and were able to react immediately to the bird strike. In the case of the real flight, the flight crew had to take time to assess the situation before taking action. This is the human factor. That's key. And we'll talk about this, but the movie over-exaggerates this quite a bit. Yeah. The human factor really is a thing. When this human factor was added into the simulation, things changed drastically. The simulation flight crews were briefed to delay taking action for 35 seconds to account for this human factor time. Because, for example, when you're doing the simulation, yes, you can react immediately to the bird strike because you knew it was going to happen and you know what to do next. In the case of the actual flight, they saw the birds, didn't know what the airplane was going to do after getting hit, and then when they lost both engines, they had a small amount of time to try to figure out what was actually going on with the airplane before trying to do anything about it. So they basically factored that in as 35 seconds of time from the moment of impact with the birds. When this was added in, nearly all of the simulations ended in crashes short of making it to any runway. So in other words, they couldn't do it. There was no way. They did the right thing. They couldn't make it to an airport. It wasn't going to happen. The investigation also aimed to highlight another interesting choice by the flight crew, which was to use the engine dual failure checklist for their emergency situation. And this is important because you think okay yeah they lost both engines that seems like the right thing to do that's a checklist for dual engine failure but you're wrong you are wrong it's not true this checklist is trained and it is intended for the loss of both engines but when the flight crew were trained to use it in the simulators they were given scenarios approved and trained by airbus which have the dual engine failure occurring at or above 20,000 feet so you have altitude. You have altitude. To recover. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. 2,000 feet. Yeah. they which had is nothing. Yeah. They had n- no time to do this. When they're doing the simulations, after following the checklist normally, the simulation would allow one engine to restart between 10,000 and 8,000 feet. And then the crews would be able to land normally. They didn't have 10,000 plus feet to give in this actual scenario. So... They were never going to complete this checklist. This checklist was long, very long at the time. And they were never going to restart any engines. 
This checklist was not intended for an airplane that is climbing out after takeoff, let alone one that's at 3,000 feet. Airbus, and this is going to make you mad, Airbus had not yet considered a low-level engine dual failure checklist in order to abbreviate the process for limited time. So they didn't even consider doing a low-level checklist. Which, it kind of surprises me, because usually when stuff happens, it happens on takeoff and landing. or landing. Yes, which is absolutely true. Which means you only have a couple thousand feet of altitude. Well, and, you know, Airbus kind of thinks of everything. Boeing does too. And so why didn't they think of this? It's actually kind of amazing that they had a dual engine failure checklist in the first place. To be fair, yes, but there's enough incidents where that happened. There's right. enough precedent. Right. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, what had happened during this accident had never happened before. So Yeah, which is true. And, we'll talk about it later, is really unlikely. It turns out that this was also pretty standard across the board in the entire industry at the time. These low-altitude dual failure engine checklists just didn't exist in the airlines. They, they just didn't. It wasn't a thing. These checklists were not standard anywhere. It's because it's really rare. Yes. Very rare. Usually you have at least one engine, right? Yes. And planes and can fly with just one engine. Usually they expect that if an airplane loses both engines, it's probably at altitude because of fuel. That's usually the primary reason they would lose both engines. Something's wrong with fuel. In 2005... So this is an interesting thing, because this kind of goes in a different direction. It shows that Airbus was had a different train of thought. In 2005, Airbus had amended the checklists to include a fuel-remaining checklist option and a no-fuel-remaining checklist option, which would skip the engine reignite procedure. This update also included the ditching procedure, which was previously in a different checklist. So both of these things were really important. They added the ditching procedure to the checklist's period for dual engine failure, in the expectation that a lot of the time when this happens, it's an airplane over the ocean. But also they created the secondary checklist when there's no fuel remaining, which skips that whole trying to restart the engine thing because it wouldn't happen. So basically Airbus managed to start creating a checklist that could have been usable at a low altitude without actually creating one intended for that. It was noted that the checklist in the airplane at the time was much too long for the time that the flight crew had. The flight crew attempted the relight in the procedure because they were not aware of the severity of the damage to the engines, which would not allow them enough time for the relight. Or it to function because they were still lit, but didn't have the capacity to generate thrust. Correct. Well, even if they shut it off and tried to turn it back on, it wouldn't wouldn't have worked. worked. Yes, correct. The engines were too damaged. It was determined that if the crew had a shorter checklist, better designed for the scenario, then they would have had a higher chance of completing the checklist, because they only managed to complete one-third of the dual engine failure checklist. Which is nothing, it turns out. And that's because they would get to the point where they try to restart an engine, and then they would have to start that over again. Now, mind you, that's also because they only had four minutes. Four. Yep. Four from the time of impact with the birds, to the time they hit the Hudson. Four minutes. It takes 30 to 40 seconds to start one engine. That's not much time when you only have four minutes. Yeah, nah. Right. Nah, bruh. That wasn't going to happen. Because the checklist was so long, the crew did not complete the ditching procedure before landing in the water, because it's at the end. Which just means they just didn't push the ditch button. Basically. Which turned out... Wouldn't have mattered anyway because someone opened a door in the back of the fuselage. Yeah, that's the whole thing, right? So really, they basically did everything right. 
Yes. Without yes. a checklist. <laughs> yes, it wouldn't have mattered much anyways, which is kind of that big contentious point. Everybody's like, well, but he didn't press the ditching button, so it might I mean, have been yeah, a yeah, better he, scenario. He could have closed some vents up and whatnot. He but... could have, but then a passenger opened the door, and it didn't matter. It was all for naught anyways. It would have sank. <laughs> I mean, so, and the, the back of the fuselage was damaged. But of course, they still want to make sure that, in a similar situation, the crew does perform the ditching checklist and the ditching procedure so that they have this higher chance of living. So, it is something that going forward, they changed. We'll talk about that. In regards to the decision to ditch in the Hudson, both flight crew felt that it was the best and arguably only choice, as they knew that if they turned back to LaGuardia or they headed for Teterboro, that there would be no second chance, and they were far more likely to end up crashing in a populated area with a far greater effect. So, that's, that's what they said when they were interviewed. They said that they decided to ditch in the Hudson because they really, they pretty much knew there was no chance they were going to make it to LaGuardia or Teterboro. There was always that little bit of question in their mind if they could, but they decided that the Hudson was safer because there was a higher chance that they wouldn't end up in a populated area killing a bunch of people. Well, and so one of the things that pilots who have to do emergency landings have to do is usually find a field. There's no field in New York City. No. Uh, not where they are, anyway. No. And... Uh, there's no, when you turn, because they would have had to turn back to go to LaGuardia and even yeah. turn to go to Teterboro, and you lose altitude. They didn't have a lot of altitude. Right. So, Small planes could probably land in places like maybe Central Park or on a highway or something like that. But not but this airplane. This airplane's not going to do that. Because the flight crew were not able to perform part two of the engine dual failure checklist, they did not reach the part about speeds for this scenario. And this is important. This is something they highlighted, but it's actually incredible what happened afterward. The captain had difficulty maintaining airspeed during his final approach, which resulted in a very high angle of attack. So the airplane's nose was up high. This is different than the airplane just being nose high above the horizon. The angle of attack is actually the angle from the direction of flight versus the nose. So the airplane was descending, and that descent was below the horizon, of course. And the nose was well above the horizon. So the angle between the nose and the horizon is much smaller than the angle between the direction of flight and the nose up. So they had a really high angle of attack on their actual direction of flight. This also led to difficulties in flaring the airplane, which subsequently led to a high descent rate and damage to the rear fuselage. We'll talk a little bit about why that is here shortly. Flaps 2 was selected for this landing by the captain, as he felt that the operational advantages were greater than using flap, Flaps 3 in this scenario. This would allow the plane to land at a higher angle of attack, which is what he wanted, because he wanted to touch down rear first to prevent a cartwheel. If he had come in with flaps three, the airplane would have been a lot more flat, and it's more likely that the airplane would have broken apart when it hit the water. That's what he knew. He wanted to touch down with the rear of the fuselage first, and he did. And it turned out that actually worked. It worked better than perhaps the flaps three scenario would have. Well, and we'll cover um, the Ethiopian airplane that got hijacked eventually, but they tried ditching, and they were they tried and they cartwheeled they cartwheeled because their wing hit the water first and so the plane flipped over so it's good that he had the amount of knowledge to be like you know let's not let's do that, not do that. <laughs> yeah this was actually brilliant and the reason they questioned this was because technically he was too slow on speed for flaps too 
It was because he was having difficulty maintaining speed, which again, we'll get to here in just a moment why that is. But again, that was an interesting choice. It's the whole reason they question it. He was too low on speed, technically, for flaps two. So why wouldn't he use flaps three? Well, because he wanted the nose to be high. It worked to his advantage. Another thing the investigation highlighted was that the crew resource management was very well done in this situation, needless to say. They were just really good in the cockpit. (laughs) They handled everything unbelievably well, given the situation. Shameless plug. Nick is currently wearing his crew resource management t-shirt. That I am. Go buy one. I'm going to mention my crew resource management t-shirt. You're not wearing a crew resource management. Oh, I thought it was. No, you were in the hashtag Miranda Gets Mad History (laughs) t-shirt. Which you have done. Yes. Yes. For this episode, (laughs) turns out. Check out the first half of the episode. I don't know why you'd come in halfway through, but just in case. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, it was also determined that the ditching checklist was designed for a high-altitude approach and not the short time that the flight actually had. So the training that the flight crew was provided in ground school on the ditching procedure was little to no help in this scenario, which is actually really interesting because it's much like the dual engine failure checklist in that they just never would have had enough time to do even just the ditching portion of that checklist. They didn't have enough time. They were going to hit the water before they actually finished that checklist. So that's a problem because both of these checklists were designed for high altitude because to be fair, that is when this happens most. The investigation also found that the margin for a ditching procedure to work were also very slim and the maneuver that the pilots had to do was nearly impossible. But they still managed a best-case scenario. Literally, again, they couldn't simulate this. They could not duplicate it. So the fact that it actually was a 100% survivable incident is unbelievable. That's where the miracle on the Hudson part comes in. But the flight crew were also just extremely skilled. The investigation also determined that there was not enough training on the alpha protection mode of the airplane when a high angle of attack is inputted by the flight crew with the side stick. This allowed the captain to pull full back on the side stick without the airplane stalling. So this is actually really important. So this is what I was talking about. This is where the, he had trouble maintaining his speed. Because the airplane was trying to do it for him. The alpha protection mode keeps the airplane from stalling. Which, okay, in most situations, is brilliant. It's really helpful. However, in this case, it's un, they're unsure if that's actually true or not. If this could have been even better if the alpha protection mode hadn't kicked in. The alpha protection mode, it kicks on anytime there's electrical power to the fly-by-wire. So turning on the APU also turned the alpha protection mode back on. And that meant that even though he was, quote-unquote, manually flying the airplane, the Airbus was almost too smart for its own good, and it was fighting him the whole time. So he could be pulling full back on the stick, and it wouldn't matter. The Airbus wouldn't go full back it would decide how much of that maneuver it wanted to actually do. Which, uh, this is where we get to the part where Airbus is very automated. Right? Yes. They, and they've always been, even when they first started out. And yes. that's great in some situations, but not so much in others. Yeah, in this scenario, de- debatably, it is maybe a problem. Because he wasn't able to maintain a constant speed. Because the airplane kept nosing over on him the whole time he was trying to pull back. So his speeds kept changing. It made it difficult for him to maintain a speed. Now, granted, it did also keep him from stalling, which is good. It kept the airplane airborne long enough to make a safe water landing. Yeah, but of course we don't know if he would have stalled. because We don't. The airplane didn't let him stall. Right. So, it's kind of that, I don't know, double-edged sword. 
good and bad. Yeah, on or either like side. Glass half full or half yeah. empty. You know, it's like no one really knows, but they landed and yep. everyone was okay. So yeah, except that one flight attendant. Okay. Moving on to some findings. Mm-hmm. Findings. Findings. Oh crap! Buckle in, friends. There's a lot. Uh, yeah. Hey, might want to do a few squats beforehand because this is get intense. Intense. <laughs> Why would you do squats yeah, beforehand? To, you know, pump to, yourself up. Yeah. Get ready to go. Hype yourself up. Also, you're not gonna be able to get any exercise in today, so you might as well do it now. <laughs> get ready to go camping because this is gonna be intense. You can uh, shut up. Wow. You can do. You can <laughs> that do a, was bad. You can do a squat per finding, if you would like. That's a good one too. Get healthy. Nick, you're going to do that. Or you Hashtag could, get healthy. Or you could turn it into a, a drinking game and one shot for <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, God, no. You're going to be trash. Nick, <laughs> I am trying to make people healthy. So you're going you're gonna to do it, too. One squat per finding. Here we go. <laughs> I'm sitting in a chair. Oh, it's, I guess you're, do, you're I'll alive. do a chair squat. What's that? What? I don't know. You, you can't do a chair squat unless you're squatting against a wall. Cool. Anyway, <laughs> besides the findings that your crew and aircraft were good... The NTSB found examinations of the recovered components revealed no evidence of pre-existing engine, system, or structural damage. Yeah, the engines were great until the bards. Yeah. Bards. Engines were running all the way until they weren't. Until can, the can geese. Can stop? No. 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 God damn it. You're reading. You're getting. It's like the finding number or something. Okay. You all suck. It's finding number six. <laughs> okay. They also found. That both engines were operating normally until each ingested at least two large birds, one of which was ingested into the core engine, causing mechanical damage that prevented the engines from being able to be providing sufficient thrust to sustain flight. So again, the engines were running all the way until they weren't. God damn it, you guys suck. (laughs) Why am I I even here? I'm just going to... I don't know, why are you (laughs) here? I don't know. No, you you bring up some interesting stuff. Number five. Number five. Yeah. The airframe damage was caused by the high energy impact at the aft fuselage and the ensuing forward motion of the airplane through the water. Boom. Why am I even here? Boom. (laughs) (laughs) The NTSB had found that if the accident engine's electronic control system had been capable of informing the flight crew members about the continual operational status of the engine... The crew would not have spent valuable time trying to relight the engines, which were too damaged for any pilot action to make operational. So this is an interesting one. Because what they're actually talking about here is literally having sensors in the engine to say specifically what is wrong with the engine. I understand why they bring this up, because it can be very beneficial to know more about what's actually happening with your airplane. And as I mentioned earlier, at the time of the report, there was research going on in to doing something like this, but we don't know where that technology is today. I'm pretty sure they got it, because, I mean, most most airplanes will give you a, you know, the N1, N2, which are the fan blades, if, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not they're rotating. That usually is an indication of thrust, of course, and as well as temperatures and stuff like that. So, yes, I'm and, pretty sure they got... And anymore, I mean, we're getting more and more modern airplanes technologies moving along, so it's easier to do things like this, but it's easier to implement it on a newly designed airplane than an old one. Which is kind the, of more what they're going for, anyways. Was it the ECAS we talked about that? That was the ECAM. ECAM. The ECAM Maybe. system. Yes. I think that's what it is now. Yes, the ECAM. But the the interesting thing about this is it is a bit difficult to implement because it is weight and things like that. But I can understand the benefit because 
in this situation, it could have told him, hey, the engines are running. They didn't ever shut down, but they will not produce thrust. Because it could have told him, hey, the core is damaged. So stop trying. So stop trying. All right. Move on. <laughs> and it could have given him more time to, say, run a ditching checklist. The NTSB found the size and number of birds ingested into the accident engines well exceeded the current bird ingestion certification standards. They found current small and medium flocking bird tests would be better tests of the turbofan engine core resistance to bird ingestion if the lowest expected fan speed for the minimum climb rate were used instead of the 100% fan speed because it would allow a larger portion of the bird mass to go into the engine core. So, and, you, and not get diced. Yes. So this actually makes a lot of sense. You think about it, the engine's spinning slower. That means the bird hits less fan, and therefore bigger chunks go through the engine. Like, say, in this incident, where they were only at 85%, not 100. Hence, bigger pieces of bird made it to the core. Hence, the core shut down. The NTSB found additional considerations need to be addressed related to large flocking bird certification test standards because they do not require large flocking bird tests on smaller transport category aircraft, such as the engines on this one. Which I mentioned earlier was because of the surface area of the engine inlet. Yeah. But it turns out it's also still very important. It turns out a bird doesn't care. No. Yeah. I don't know why they were like, the large birds won't go into these engines, right? I'm like, how like, could you determine that? Well, like, small engines still bigger than that bird? Meh. They knew that it could happen. But they didn't want to test it because then they would have to exactly. make the engines with, be able to withstand a strike, which would make the engines too large and heavy. Exactly. And so what have we done these days? Made engines bigger. Hence the Neo and the Max. Well, that's mostly for fuel efficiency. It is, but it turns out that's also very beneficial in a situation like this, because then it qualifies. Side benefit. Yes. They found that although engine design changes and protective screens have been used or considered in some engine and aircraft designs as a, mean of, as a means to protect against bird ingestion, neither option has found to be available on turbofan engines like the accident engines. So there's sure. a lot of things that go wrong when you put a screen in front of an engine. Yeah, it turns out it makes the engine a lot less efficient. Well, and there's like lack of airflow. And then if you do have a bird and the bird's stuck on there, and then there's even less airflow, and then yep. what's the point of the mesh screen? And yep. I was reading earlier in the report, I kind of glanced over it and didn't mention it at all, but another one of their big concerns was icing yeah. on the screen. Yep. Because it's really hard to have a heating system on the screen. Right. Yeah. And if you do have a heating system, is it enough to prevent that? And if it doesn't, will that send ice chunks into the engine? Right. All and that good stuff. It's a whole extra thing to inspect, too, because heating systems on that would probably break a lot. Yep. They found that although the dual engine failure checklist did not apply to this accident event, it was the most applicable checklist contained in the Quick Reference Handbook to address such event. So in other words, they did the right thing by using this checklist, but the checklist wasn't designed for this. Right. At the time, that was the best thing that they had. The NTSB also found that if a checklist had addressed dual engine failure occurring at low altitude, the flight crew members would have been more likely to have completed that checklist instead. Yep. Well, and it would be shorter. Yeah, we'll talk about how much shorter later. Did you pull up the actual dual engine failure checklist from the QRH as well? How long that is compared to the... The actual one in the book? 
The NTSB found that despite being unable to complete the dual engine failure checklist, the captain started the APU, the auxiliary power unit, which improved the outcome of the ditching by ensuring that the primary source of electrical power was available to the airplane. Really was brilliant. This was really probably the one thing he did that had the biggest impact in saving their lives. Well, especially like now where everything is electronic well yes of course and this airplane was fly by wire so the only way you could actually control this airplane is if it had electricity yes (laughs) so this was really important and he knew that and also it's nice to have like flight displays and stuff you know why would you want those yeah it turns out (laughs) this was pretty important so starting the apu yeah again arguably is the most impactful thing he actually did right so the dual engine failure with fuel remaining is a page and a half and the dual engine failure with no fuel remaining is two pages. There you nice. go. They found the captain's decision to ditch in the Hudson River rather than attempting to land an airport provided the highest probability that the accident would be survivable. They also found the captain's difficulty maintaining his intended airspeed during the final approach resulted in a high angle of attack, which contributed to difficulties in flaring the aircraft. Yeah, because if you try to pull back anymore, it just won't. Yep, this led to a high descent rate at, at, at touchdown and fuselage damage as a result. Although, minimal damage. If, yeah, even if they had gone down flat, it probably would have hurt the fuselage more it, than the, just doing the rear. It is more likely to have broken the airplane apart. Well, the, I think the argument there is that they could have came in with a less feet per minute. Yeah, they could have come in still touching, still touching the rear of the fuselage first, but... Less steep. But more forward motion than downward motion. Right, because they, they, since they couldn't flare, the aircraft just kind of came in and hit the water. If they would have been able to flare, they would have been able to slow down and put the back of the aircraft in the water nice and, quote-unquote, gently. And while they found these things, remember that this was still survivable, so technically, maybe they did the better option. Maybe, we don't know. It did result in damage to the airplane, though. Yes, and some injuries due to that. Right. And injury due to that. <laughs> they found the captain's decision to use flaps 2 for the ditching, based on his experience and the perception of the situation, was reasonable. There you go. And we'll talk about how reasonable, again, in a little while. But it was very reasonable. The NTSB found the professionals in the flight crew and their excellent crew resource management. Da-da-da-da! Da-da-da! Da-da-da! During the accident sequence contributed to the survivability of the impact. They did a really friggin' good job. They done did good. Done did good. <laughs> that flight crew done did there. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Oh my God. That, there was a good landing, Hey, buddy. you got done start the APU. Landing found comprehensive guidelines on the best means to develop emergency and abnormal checklists would increase the likelihood of a successful outcome to such events. Yeah. The NTSB also found training pilots to how to respond to a dual engine failure occurring at a low altitude would change them to use some extra critical thinking skills. This is important. And that's great. I mean, I think that's a great thing to take away from this. Before, the, before this incident, they did not train for low altitude dual engine failure. Nope. They just assumed it would happen at a high altitude. Gotta go back to your single engine days as a pilot. That's right. You gotta prepare for everything. Uh-huh. They found the flight crew members would have been better prepared to ditch the airplane if they had received training and guidance in the visual illusions that can occur landing on water and on approach and about touchdown techniques used during a ditching with and without engine power. 
So landing on water causes some weird things with your eyeballs that confuses yes. your brain muscles. <laughs> brain and uh, and causes some weird stuff. Yeah. Basically, you just can't tell how Illusions. high above the water you are, yeah. which we actually talked about in TAA, whatever it was. Trans-Australia. 538? Yes. Where they ended up sure. impacting the water with a kid in the cockpit, maybe? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it was at night, even though there was moon and it was glassy seas. Yeah. They didn't know how high above the water they possibly Good were. And that was glassy water. That was possibly, possibly one of the Yeah, because they don't know for sure what yeah. happened. But that incident, there was no CVR. That incident is why we have CVRs and FDRs. Refer back to so. episode 49. The NTSB found training pilots that sidestick inputs may be weakened when the aircraft is in alpha protection mode would provide them with a better understanding of how entering this mode may affect the pitch response of the aircraft. And they didn't know that, so they didn't know they were fighting the airplane as much as they were. And yes, we found review of the Airbus operational procedures conducted during the ditching certification process for the A320 did not evaluate whether pilots could obtain all the Airbus ditching parameters, nor was Airbus required to conduct such evaluation. Seems important. Well, Especially in this incident, mostly. Well, I guess it really wasn't that important. Yeah. But whatever. Whatever. They also found that this accident was not a typical bird strike event. Therefore, this accident demonstrates that a bird strike does not need to be typical to be hazardous. Nope. No, really. Which I will talk about a little bit more later, how unique this bird strike was. Yeah. The NTSB found, although currently no technological, regulatory, or operational changes related to wildlife mitigation, including the use of avian radar, could be made that would lessen the probability of a similar bird strike event from occurring, considering considerable research is being conducted in this area. I will talk about that later. Some avian radar. Yes, that is a thing that does exist and works. They found research on the use of aircraft systems such as pulsating lights, weather radar, and my favorite, lasers, <laughs> may lead to effective methods of deterring birds from entering the flight paths of aircraft. Don't fly at me, I have lasers. Just pew pew, motherfucker! Imagine like, like a bird coming to it. You <laughs> cut in half by a laser. Along. <laughs> yeah. I I will talk about some possible mitigation that does not include if lasers. If it's not lasers, I'm not interested. A320 defensive mode activate. <laughs> Oh, they found the emergency response was timely and efficient due to the proximity of emergency responders to the accident site. Good job. Yep, thank you, New York Waterway. They found flight attendant B was injured by a vertical beam after it punctured the cabin floor during impact. And because of the beam's location directly underneath the flight attendant's jump seat, any individual seated in this location during a ditching or gear of landing is at serious risk of injury. Due to the compression and or collapse of the aircraft structure. Yeah, so the beam literally broke, went through the floor, and struck the flight attendant underneath her seat. Well, it went she, through her leg. Yeah, it put a hole in her leg, which she... Well, just kind of cut her leg. Yeah, it cut her leg. But she didn't notice, <laughs> by the way, until she was outside the airplane. Which we talked about is like, could be due to adrenaline, but also the back of the plane had a bunch of cold water... <laughs> Yeah, so, so it's like a numbing agent. Yeah. yeah. Numbing and adrenaline, you got all sorts of things. All sorts of things pain. kept her from noticing. <laughs> she probably got out of the airplane and went, Ow! <laughs> she was considered a serious injury, though. Yep. They found flight attendants initiated 
the evacuation promptly, and although they all had encountered difficulties at their exits, they still managed to have an effective and timely evacuation. Which Yay. is true. Everybody got outside of the airplane quickly. We can't say get off the airplane quickly. Because they were mostly stuck on the airplane. Yeah. Right. Although the aircraft was not required to be equipped with extended overwater operations, the fact that the airplane was so equipped included the availability of the forward slide rafts. We talked about that. Yep. Contributing to the lack of fatalities and the low number of serious cold water immersion-related injuries because about 64 occupants used the forward slide rafts after the ditching. So now they have even more rafts. Yes. And all right. planes have rafts now. And yes. it's it, it's regardless of route. Yeah. Well, they don't have, not the ones in the upper cabin, they don't all have those, but I no. think almost all of them have... Slide rafts. Slide rafts. Yes. Almost every airplane does have slide rafts. Some have both. And that's because of this incident. Yes. Unless and they can't be used in the back, and we'll talk about that here just a little bit yeah, as well. Yeah. The placement of cabin safety equipment locations on the Airbus A320 airplane did not consider that the leakage sustained during a ditching would include significant aft fuselage breaching and subsequent water entry into the aft area of the airplane. That's important. Which prevents the slide rafts from being available for use during an evacuation. All of this is very important. So they had a lot of equipment they couldn't use because the plane was sinking at the rear. And all that equipment was at the rear. And they this is, again, where we get on our soapbox and say, please check your safety card. And listen to flight attendants. Yeah. And they also just couldn't use the rear slides because the airplane was sinking. The safety, the safety cards will tell you if you can or cannot use the rear exits in a water landing. And in this case, they actually didn't know. Well, also, <laughs> if the back of the plane's underwater, don't go to the back. Yeah. Thankfully, please. people didn't. Except well, the one guy who tried to open the yeah, door. Yeah, exactly. The one guy who was like, I'm going to get out. Oh, no. And then the airplane <laughs> was sinking faster. Yeah. The problem is, is, okay, so if he had pressed the ditching button, there's a small possibility they could have used the rear slides and they could have used that to float. But that didn't happen. And also, I think they pretty much determined that the Airbus just kind of sinks at the rear anyways. So even right. with the ditching procedure, more than likely those slides were not usable as rafts. The NTSB found equipping aircraft with flotation seat cushions and life vests on all flights, regardless of the route, would provide passengers the benefit of water buoyancy and stability in the event of an accident involving water. Yes, sure, it'd be nice to have both, but what we have proven is that all airplanes have at least one of those two options. Usually it's the life vest. Yes, still, to this day. There are some airplanes that do not have that. Mostly because they don't, they don't have life vests because they don't fly near water. Yeah. The... CRJ-200 that we flew to Pueblo. It has floating it has seat floating seats. Oh, well, that's a little bit different. But so that's because that specific aircraft didn't fly anywhere near open water. Well, it even, does not typically. Even they, so, like, transcontinental yeah. flights, even that just pass over the United States, still have life right. vests. Well, that's just because they fly near oceans. Yep. I looked up, when we flew to Pueblo, I looked up the routes that that aircraft had done, and it didn't go anywhere near water. Yeah, it won't go anywhere near water, water city. So they don't need the life vests in theory. They just need the floaty seats. So they still have one or the other. Yep. The NTSB found briefing passengers on and demonstrating the use of all flotation equipment installed on an airplane on all flights, regardless of route, will improve the chances that the equipment will be used during an accident involving water. Wow. Yes. <laughs> that. <laughs> Which they did, right? Before this, even. And they still do. Yep. 
This is an interesting one. They found passenger behavior on the accident flight, this one, indicated that most passengers would not wait 7 to 8 seconds, the reported average life vest retrieval time, before giving up the attempt and evacuating the aircraft without a life vest. Take the extra seconds. Yeah, this reminds me of the people that, like, right when you land, they take off their seatbelt. Stop it. Don't do that. Don't do it. Don't do it. Wait for instructions. Wait for the airplane to stop. You're not going to get off the airplane any faster because you took your seatbelt off. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. And it's also, not happening. you're not going to... Your chances of survival on water without taking your life vest, seriously lower. You know, you could you know, put the thing over your head and work on the strap things when you're trying to wait in line to get out of the airplane. Yeah. Yep. Just a thought. Yeah. You know, whatever. The NTSB found current life vest design standards contained in Technical Standard Order C-13F do not ensure that passengers can quickly or correctly don life vests. This is important. So life vests changed after this. It's very important. It used to be like you have to take one strap and put that one in the front, and you take the other one over, put that one in the front, clip them in, and pull it tight, and then cinch that. Now you these things put it over anymore. your head, wrap it around the waist... Buckle. It's one buckle. Yeah. Unless you're in Europe, I think they're different. Oh, well, depends if on the you're airline, flying usually. in the United because States. I was watching the British Airways safety video, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. You had to like wrap the thing around twice and then tie it, tie it in a bow in the front. Yep. I'm like, oh, oh dear my lord. God. And the stuff. final finding! I'm so sorry for the really loud. We so significantly overblew there. And clipped really bad. The NTSB found most passengers did not pay attention to the oral pre flight safety briefing or read the safety information card before the accident flight indicating that more creative and effective methods of conveying safety information to passengers are needed because of the risk associated with passengers not being aware of safety equipment. This is so common these days. Listen. Like, it was bad then. It's worse now because, you know, smartphones, Put your damn phone down, wake up from your nap, look at what they're doing. Even if you've seen it a thousand times, read the damn safety information card. Two minutes, Two minutes of your life. That's Literally. all it can take to save your and life. And then you can go back to your phone or sleeping or whatever. Two minutes of your life. That's all you need to maybe survive. Okay. Well, on that note, the probable cause verbatim, as oh. usual. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the ingestion of large birds into each engine, which resulted in an almost total loss of thrust in both engines and the subsequent ditching on the Hudson River, contributing to the fuselage damage and resulting unavailability of the aft slide and rafts were, one, the FAA's approval of ditching certification without determining whether pilots could attain the ditching parameters without engine thrust, Two, the lack of industry flight crew training and guidance on ditching techniques. And three, the captain's resulting difficulty maintaining his intended airspeed on final approach due to the task saturation resulting from the emergency situation. Contributing to the survivability of the accident was, one, the decision-making of the flight crew members and their crew resource management during the accident sequence. Two, the fortuitous use of an airplane that was equipped for an extended overwater flight, including the availability of forward slides rafts, even though it was not required to be so equipped. And three, the performance of the cabin crew members while expediting the evacuation of the plane, and four, the proximity of the emergency responders to the accident site and their immediate and appropriate response to the accident. 
Woo! Long probable cause for a very important incident. And now, for the recommendations. The NTSB recommends to the Federal Aviation Administration, also known as the FAA, and the European Aviation Safety something... Agency. 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 Or the EASA, they recommend both of those agencies modify federal regulation, or CFR, 33.76C, small and medium flocking bird certification test standards require that the test be conducted using the lowest expected fan speed instead of 100% fan speed. Yep. Talked about that one a lot. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They recommend to the FAA and the EASA, get a group of people together to determine if CFR 33.76D, large flocking bird certification test standards, to determine whether they should, one, apply to engines with an inlet area of less than 3,875 square inches, and two, include a requirement for engine core ingestion. I love the fact that they had to, they recommended getting a group of people together. I, I kind of, re- kind of get a group together to determine. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, guys, I recommend we maybe have a party. <laughs> and in that party, we need to discuss these things. Hey, uh, you, uh... I'll bring pizza. Six. Can you figure this out, please? Thanks. Yeah. I'll bring pizza. They require to the FAA and EASA to require manufacturers of turbine-powered aircraft to develop a checklist and procedure for a dual-engine failure occurring at low altitude. This Boom. was done. It was done. And it's very important. And we have it. We do. For the A319-20 quick reference checklist. We have the actual checklist as it is. We're going to see how fast we can do it. So the circumstances that we got are dual engine failure, and we need to ditch the damn airplane. Yep. (laughs) And this is at low altitude. Do you want to read the first three things written up at the top? Fly the aircraft, silence the warning, confirm the emergency. Yes, this is very important as well. Fly the airplane first, then silence the warning, then confirm the emergency. See how fast we can do this. Ready? Timer? Ready? Start. (laughs) APU. Start. Flaps. Two. VAP. Determine. Landing gear. Up. Ditching. Press button. On. Brace for impact. Order. Touchdown. At minimum vertical speed. Pitch. Five to eight degrees. Eleven for water. All engine masters. Off. APU master switch. Off. Evacuation quick reference. Accomplish. When it says VAP and determine, there is a... You guys can't see it, but there's a... A small chart. There's a chart that determines your approach speed, which is VAP, based on your gross weight. VAP. Yep. And then... the evacuation. Also, that was about 23 seconds. And that was specifically for the ditching portion. You want to do the evacuation checklist? It's 10 actions. Okay. ATC. Notify. (laughs) Parking brake. Verify set. Okay, we're in the water. (laughs) (laughs) Dome light. Bright. Except the APU's off. (laughs) So there's no power. It's cool. Differential pressure. Check zero. Engine masters. Off. Evacuation. Announce. Release your seatbelts and get out. Evac command. Evac. Activate. Engine and APU fire. Press buttons. buttons. I don't know if that's press buttons. I don't know. Push. (laughs) Illuminated fire buttons. Agent. Push. Sliding windows. Escape lines. As required. Boom. So that's the the actual just normal evacuation checklist for even, like, a landing. That is to say, though, that the cabin crew also has their own checklists for such a thing, because usually the flight crew is not facilitating that. They're usually trying to... No, they usually tell the cabin crew, yo, get everybody out. And they go, okay, I got you, bruh. 
and they, they exactly like that. Exactly yeah. like that. But the whole point of this is that that was very short. That's what they came up with. And there's a few really important things of note in there. Uh, for they, one, ditching instructions are in the checklist. Ditching instructions are in the checklist, and they're short. They're easy to follow. This is important. The other key things are that they followed what Sully did to a T in order to pull this off. The first thing he did was start the APU. And that's the first item. The second thing that he did, other than deal with the engines, was set the flaps to the second detent. And this just goes for all the new pilots out there. Don't read your checklists. They're super inaccurate and unimportant. Okay? <laughs> it turns out pretty much developing the checklist from things that go well is how things happen. They, and so that's they what they did. made the checklist from the actions of this flight. Yeah, which is amazing. That's the A320 across the board. The NTSB recommends to the FAA develop and validate comprehensive guidelines for emergency and abnormal checklist design and development. That's kind of what we just did. We just read one of these abnormal checklists because this was a weird scenario. Yep, and the guidelines should consider the order of critical items on the checklist, for example, starting the APU. First, the NTSB recommends to the FAA require CFR Part 121, Part 135, and Part 91 Subpart K operators. From now on, anytime I say operators... That's what it means. That's going to include all Part 121, 135, and 91 Subpart K. Do Do you want to define those real quick? Part 121 is commercial aviation. Is airline Airline operations. 135 is... Charter and other operations. Mostly, I think, yeah. It's just charter. Yeah. Because part 91 is be general. 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 But subpart K... It's fractional ownership operations. Yeah. All All of those. All that stuff. Okay. Recommend operators to include a dual engine failure scenario occurring at low altitude in initial and recurrent ground and simulator training. They also recommend to provide training and guidance to pilots that inform them of the visual illusions that occur when landing on Wada. Yeah. Important. The NTSB recommends to the FAA and the EASA to require applicants for aircraft certification to demonstrate that their ditching parameters can be obtained without engine power by pilots without the use of exceptional skill or strength. So you should be able to do it without being an amazing pilot like this crew was. So they want airplanes to basically be designed to be handled that way. In this case, it was a very, very skilled crew that thankfully pulled that off. Also, the strength part. Yeah, the strength part. is. You might have a woman. I'm sorry. <laughs> you about to get slapped. I'm just referring to the part where you use an able-bodied man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, listen, I could have easily held that door open. Watch this. Just saying. NTSB recommends to require to the FAA and the ASA for Airbus operators to change the ditching portion of the dual engine failure checklist to select the ground proximity warning system and terrain alerts to off during the final descent. Now, why? And this is interesting because we didn't really talk about this, but this Actually, is we did. important about the, about the warnings being over yeah, the top yeah, of one another. If you were to take the duct tape off your ears, you would have heard it. <laughs> yes, okay. But this is really important because one warning was actually over top of the other because the Airbus has a prioritizing system. And it did, they didn't hear the speed alerts because it was doing the ground proximity warning alerts instead because it thought that was the more imminent problem, even though in this scenario it wasn't. So since we have the quick reference handbook in front of us, uh, on the ditching checklist, steps 12 and 13 are GPWS system switch off and GPWS terrain system switch off. Important. There you go. So it was done. So it would stop telling them to pull up when they knew that they couldn't yeah. do anything. Yeah, too low terrain. 
Pull up. We know. We know. We know. Thank you for Please. the information. Please tell me my speeds. Don't think. Don't think. <laughs> too low, gear. Too low, train. Sad part is this airplane actually sunk. <laughs> Anyways. See in the water. Don't think. Don't, Don't think. Bloop, 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 bloop. They recommend to require Airbus operators to expand ground school training on angle of attack protection envelope limitations to inform pilots about the alpha protection mode features. That's the thing that prevents yeah. the aircraft from stalling. stalling. Yep. They recommend the FAA work with the Department of Agriculture to develop innovative technologies that can be installed on aircraft that would reduce the likelihood of bird strikes. I will talk about it. Cool beans. They also require Airbus to redesign the frame 65 vertical beam to lower the likelihood of it puncturing the cabin during a gear-up landing or ditching. And I believe they did this. I would hope so. So that it doesn't I hurt I really hope people. they did. Nothing like having a metal beam go up your ass. Yeah, it's great. The NTSB recommends to the FAA and the EASA to require cabin safety equipment to be stowed in locations that ensure that life rafts and or slide rafts remain accessible and that sufficient capacity is available for all occupants during a ditching. So much like the Titanic didn't have enough boats, this one didn't end up having enough rafts. Well, it didn't once the aft end couldn't be used. Yes, exactly. So that's a problem. They were saying, you know, now that we know this, do something about it. Uh, The NTSB recommends the FAA and the EISA to require quick-release girts. Girts. Which I believe is the flap that attaches the slide to the walkway of the door. Yeah. Yeah, the bottom of the door there. So quick release one of those and handholds on all evacuation slides and slide wrap combinations. Important. So you got something to hold on to. They also require operators to provide information about lifelines. Well, I mean, it is relevant in that they're now in place. Read your safety information card. You will see lifelines and where they are stowed and how to use them. Yep. They're the ropes that are usually by the wings. They recommend operators... Be equipped with flotation seat cushions and life vests for each occupant on all aircraft, on all flights, regardless of the route. They also recommend operators brief passengers on all flotation equipment installed on the airplane, including a full demonstration of correct life vest retrieval and donning procedures before all flights, regardless of the route. This is in effect. Yes. The NTSB also recommends to the FAA and the EASA require modifications to life vest stowage compartments and stowage compartment locations to improve the availability to passengers to retrieve these life vests for all occupants. So that it doesn't take that seven to eight seconds that people are so impatient for. Exactly. Right. The NTSB recommends to revise life vest performance standards to ensure that they result in a life vest that passengers can quickly and correctly don. And as we discussed, Which they did. Yeah, they did. Yes, Except made it a little bit easier. Europe, apparently. I guess. And the final, last but not least, recommendation. Woo. According to the NTSB, operators are recommended to implement creative and effective methods of overcoming passengers' inattention and providing them with safety information. And a lot of airlines have done this. Not all of them, but many airlines come up with really creative safety briefings. Yeah, I mean, they have... Between either really funny crew to do it, Southwest, (laughs) or just great 
safety videos, if you've never watched them, go look up Air New Zealand. They have the best ever because a lot of them are also Lord of the Rings themed, but they also have just fantastic videos all together. They're just hilarious and they do a great job. And most airlines that have the seat back flight entertainment systems put them to use and they stop you from getting distracted because the safety video is in front of your face. Yeah. Okay. So given that this is our bird strike series, I am going to go a little bit more into that. Let's discuss for a moment how this particular event was so unique even among bird strikes. As of this report in 2010, there had been 26 large transport aircraft lost to bird strikes since 1960, with 93% happening during takeoff and landing 500 feet or less above the ground. This plane? It was 2,800 feet above the ground and 4.3 miles away from LaGuardia, way outside of the norm for bird strikes. On top of that, this strike happened in the New York City area, one of the lower bird strike regions of the United States. As if that wasn't enough, it happened in January, the third lowest month for bird strikes in the area. Another lucky lottery factor, data from the FAA's National Wildlife Strike Database shows that you were 30 times more likely to have damage to only one engine as opposed to two. The very last factor requires some explanation and a trip back to the Feather Identification Lab. The last goal of the Feather Identification Lab was to determine where exactly these birds came from. Why might investigators want to know this? If the birds were local, it's easier to come up with a wildlife mitigation plan, and these birds usually don't fly as high. Alternatively, migrating birds are harder to mitigate because they fly higher and follow long-established migration routes. The lab figured out where they came from by doing some fancy science and performing a hydrogen isotope analysis of the feathers from the engines and compared those with samples from all over the range of the Canada goose. The results show that the geese that were ingested were from further north in Canada, which sucks. Freaking Canada. Freaking Canada. They hit a migratory flock, which is way less likely than a local flock. Which is why they were at almost 3,000 feet instead of at, yep. like, 50 with all of that being said, a lot of mitigation that is now in place would not have actually prevented this accident, but have prevented so many, and a lot was present even at the time of this crash. The FAA provides guidance to airports on constructing, implementing, and evaluating wildlife hazard management plans. However, only about half of all Part 139 airports maintained these programs or conducted wildlife hazard assessments. That's a pretty low percentage, but it's actually because of regulations. The CFR section 139.337 says that a serious wildlife strike is required to initiate wildlife strike mitigation. Something bad has to happen before prevention is considered. It does happen here in Denver, and we have a hawk. They have a trained hawk that will chase off other birds. Yeah, we've talked about that in a previous episode. Yeah. Yep. But more of the problem was, like, if... Even if there was risk, until something happened, there was no prevention measures put in place. Right, right. Which sucks. Yes. In 1999, the NTSB and the U.S. Department of Agriculture together recommended that these assessments be performed at all Part 139 airports, but the FAA turned their nose up at this recommendation, as it would burden many airports that didn't have a history of strikes. After this accident, the NTSB made this recommendation again, and went further to require airports to implement wildlife hazard management plans if the assessment indicated that one is necessary. And the FAA listened, to an extent. From what I can find, these are the requirements for a wildlife hazard assessment. An air carrier aircraft experiences multiple wildlife strikes. An air carrier aircraft experiences substantial damage from striking wildlife. An air carrier aircraft experiences an engine ingestion of wildlife and wildlife of a size or in numbers capable of causing an event described 
in this other section of the CFR, is observed to have access to any airport flight pattern or aircraft movement area. So by seeing the potential for a problem, you could require the assessment. After the assessment is performed, the airport submits it to the FAA who will determine if a management plan is required. After the accident, a wildlife factors group was put together of the NTSB, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the FAA, and Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. I shall summarize their report. LaGuardia's wildlife hazard management plan was based on a wildlife hazard assessment conducted in 2000 by the USDA Wildlife Services. The assessment's purpose was to identify the species of concern, their numbers, locations, movement, both daily and seasonal, identify the attractants to the wildlife, describe the hazard to air carrier operations, review existing wildlife strike records, and recommend a plan for reducing these hazards. The management plan notes the following as serious strike threats. Herring gulls, double-crested cormorants, and Canada geese. Canada geese, yeah. All of which are due to their size. Yeah. Personnel inspect the airfield through the day, every day, for birds. Any birds found on the airfield or the tidal flat areas nearby are dispersed or removed with the assistance of the Port Authority Police Department. Imagine working for that police department and your job is to remove birds. That's great. LaGuardia has a full-time bird supervisor specifically for wildlife control activities, logging hazards, recovering and identifying carcasses after strikes, and collecting and reporting wildlife strike information. These bird supervisors are trained by airport wildlife biologists, which is a hell of a job title. Yeah, how do you get that job? No idea. This training includes wildlife identification, laws, and management techniques. Another aspect of the plan is actually a particular location that was a goose home for a while. Here's your list. LaGuardia, the USDA, the New York City Mayor's Department, the New York City Department of Corrections, the Town of Hempstead, the New York City Department of Parks, the New York City Department of Environmental Protection, the New York City Economic Development Corporation, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the National Park Service all collaborated to reduce the Canada geese on Rikers Island. Just when you thought Rikers Island couldn't get any more hazardous. (laughs) Yeah. Man, put my list to shame. I know. But Rikers Island is right next to LaGuardia. Right next. It amazes me that they put a prison so close to an airport. I know. So, all of these groups work together on Rikers Island, capturing and removing 1,249 geese between 2004 and 2008. The nests and eggs were and are routinely discovered and destroyed. LaGuardia has sponsored studies to find what species of grass are best to deter waterfowl and have planted these as well as implemented artificial turf, removing food sources from geese. LaGuardia monitors the airport for any standing water and drains it as that is also an attractant. And lastly, LaGuardia implements deterrence against perching, like on light posts and other man-made and natural structures. So like spikes sticking out of lights. Yeah. Or like if you've ever seen the like little cross beams and stuff. Um, it's not cross beams. What is it called? Chicken wire? Yeah. 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 Or that go between like outside on top of things so that birds can't get in. Yep. Was it with you guys where the light posts had little like wires just kind of hanging off and dangling? Oh, yeah. What was that? Was that in LA? It must have been. It, yes, yes, it was. It was. I remember seeing it. Hey, they were. There weren't any birds up there. I guess. Right over Except at the end out. Yeah. Stupid yeah. seagull that was on the pier. That was on the pier, though. They only used spikes. Yeah. I mentioned earlier that we watched a documentary about birds and their effect on aviation. It's called Bird vs. Plane. Very original. It's on Paramount Plus along with Air Disasters, so you know, you can watch Air Disasters, too. 
that's a thing. Some of the technology they discussed is more recent than this report. For example, Joint Base San Antonio in Texas happens to be at the convergent point of three different migratory paths for a huge number of species of birds. And they have a ginormous bird strike risk all year. They have to watch the birds as much, if not more, than the weather. And as such, they have a bird detection radar in the air traffic control tower. And they use it to monitor bird activity levels. Blew my mind. It's, it's crazy. It really does track birds. Once the levels of birds in the area reach a certain threshold, they actually adjust their air traffic patterns accordingly, going from parallel takeoffs for trainers down to interval takeoffs, so that if you need to, you know, dodge a bird, you're not going to just fly into your flying partner. Yeah, it's important. Just a thought. Purdue University and the USDEA were, at the time of this documentary, in the midst of a study to determine if certain colors of lights were aversive to birds with the purpose of eventually implementing them in aircraft as flying deterrents. Quote, birds consistently avoided LED lights with peaks at 470 and 630 nanometers, which appear blue and red to the human eye. Ultraviolet, green, and white light did not generate any obvious pattern of avoidance or attraction. End quote. So who knows? Maybe that's the next big industry thing. That study was published in 2020. The police airplanes. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. <laughs> the thing go around. Oh, God. Well, that's... There's your bird strike series, but, ladies and gents and them. If you want to go see this airplane, you can, starting again mm -hmm. in 2023. And maybe we'll go take a trip there. It's in the Carolinas? It's going to be at the Carolinas Aviation Museum. So, maybe we'll plan a trip. Yeah. Hopefully, starting, yeah, 2023, the airplane should be on display at the Carolinas Aviation Museum. Which, and it's still there. It's whole. You can see the whole thing. Which is crazy. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. So, that would be pretty cool. And I just want to say, too, like, Sully, yeah, superhero yeah. in aviation. And I look up to him because he, even before this accident, was a preacher of aviation safety. He had an aviation safety company that he ran. And... That's kind of what this is. That's why I wanted this podcast. Yep. Aviation safety. That's her As thing. It turns out. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to our Bird Strike series. That was U.S. Airways Fly 1549. Thank you, Brendan, for covering for Nick for Thanks. several episodes. Yes, Nick will be now back starting next episode. Next that was week. a lot of fun. Woo! You can do it again Woo! if you want. It's up to you. Well, it's up to you guys. And Brendan Anytime. is going to go... Train on high-performance aircraft. Boop, boop. Yay. Boop. All um, right, friends. My dad also got to help clean up a bird strike overnight last night. Just wanted to say that. Yeah, right um, as we're recording this. For his job. Literally, yeah, as we were recording this last night, he sent me pictures from a bird strike. That was great. We'll have them posted on uh, the website separately so you guys can see them. All right, friends. Uh, remember to send us your celebration of some kind stories for July. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to our patrons. Remember to check out the Patreon. You can go to our website or you can go to patreon.com. Check out our merchandise. As we mentioned, we do have shirts that say hashtag Miranda gets mad at history and CRM. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Stay healthy this next week. And we'll catch you all next week. We're going to get the flock out of here. Flock yeah. Keep, Keep your speed up. up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at HardLandingsPodcast and on Twitter at HardLandingsPod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at HardLandingsPodcast.com 
where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Brendan and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.